Welcome to Splat Book, the RPG Topics podcast. If this is your first episode, if this is your first episode, we talk about tabletop RPG design. And today we are, in fact, doing exactly that. Uh, this show is brought to you by the generous contributions of the lovely macker- backers of the MapCrow Patreon. Head on over to patreon.com slash MapCrow and pledge today to support the show and gain exclusive access to the MapCrow Secret Sketchbook. My name is Kyle, and with me today is my favorite Game Master, John. Hey, Kyle. And with us today is my favorite uh, Canadian emigre amateur game designer, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome Hi, to the show, thank Ben. You. <laughs> thank you so much. Ben and I have known each other for a long time. We used to work together. We played games together. And he's here today because I just ran a play test of a game that he's working on called Wiccan Wander. And that's going to be our main topic today. So we thought we'd have him on to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Awesome. Hey, um, we did get an email, Kyle. Some follow-up from our last uh, episode. So I thought we should we should dig into that a little. Let's talk a little more Lord of the Rings 5e, if you're up for it. Yeah, I'm always up for it. You know me. I do. I've, I've actually gone a, a little bit off the deep end. I've been taking a lot of notes for my One Ring game that I want to run and uh, and uh, listening listening to the audiobook and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm I've got I've got Lord of the Rings on the brain. I just started rereading the paper version. Are you listening to the Andy Circus one? No. I'm oh, listening right. to the old one where the guy actually like sings all the songs and everything. That one's pretty good, though. It, I've it, listened to that it, one. It, it rips. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, let me read your email. We got an email from uh, Trent. Thank you, Trent, for your email. Uh, the email is really nice and says a lot of wonderful things about the show. So I won't go. I'm not going to read the whole email, but I did want to pull out one thing that he asked, one question he asked that I thought would be fun for us to talk about. So... They asked a really good question. So here's here's the relevant part of the email. Trent says, It sounds like there's a lot of thought put into this version of Lord of the Rings for 5th edition, which makes me curious about the older Cubicle 7 version. Y'all talked about a lot of features that were not only bolted on, but features that were limited, changed, or straight ripped out of 5e. So I'm curious as to what it is left that still makes the Lord of the Rings role-playing game fifth edition besides maybe disadvantage advantage roles. So I thought that was a good question because I don't think we've talked about that a lot. Do you want to, do you want to start with that one and I can add a little mustard if needed? Yeah, I think, I think really it, it keeps the core resolution mechanics. So like add, you know, add a modifier to uh, a D20 role. Uh, and I think one of the, the big reasons to kind of keep that in place and scoop out everything else is like that is that's it's a very player facing thing. It's 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 what if you if your players are nervous about learning a brand new system, if they don't feel like they have the, the mental load to be able to do something like that, this kind of sidesteps that this, this is like we're, we're, we're running with the same interface. You know, all the dice you're supposed to roll, you know exactly where to look on your character sheet. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's got but, stats yeah. and armor class and hit points and all the other things that you're used to in fifth edition. Yeah, and exactly. it also it also avoids the um, the the completely bespoke combat mechanics that um, that that the One Ring RPG proper has. Yes. Um, so if you enjoy the if you enjoy the initiative system and 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 just the familiarity of five E combat, this also has you covered for that. 
makes me wonder if there's other D20 resolution systems that that you could sort of if you let's if you want to do Pathfinder Second Edition or something, you know, is is the Lord of the Rings for Fifth Edition complete enough that you could take some of the you know the council parts or the travel parts and bolt them onto something else? You Are know, they- it, would, it wouldn't surprise me actually if this would work with almost any um, fantasy D20 thing. You would just yeah. have to you would just have to build your encounters according to that system. But um, but that, because it uses um, skills and just kind of gives you an extra procedure to bolt on to, you know, counseling and travel. And, and, and it gives you extra skills to figure all that kind of stuff. I imagine that would be um, uh, perfectly fine to do that. Yeah. So, all right, cool. Well, Ben, did you have any thoughts there? You want to, should we dive into our topic for the day? Uh, I'm okay diving in. I, I, uh, I mean, I have uh, like so many RPGs, I have the fifth edition Lord of the Rings book on my bookshelf unread. Uh, <laughs> So I, I, I aspire to read way more RPGs than I actually end up getting. Uh, well, you're in a safe space then. Yeah, it was it, it was really interesting to me because I, I was doing a little bit of following up on this um, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, the role playing game, the fifth edition counterpart to one ring and you looking at the the just the, the numbers of ratings on uh, drive through RPG for the expansions that have come out for both of them. Yeah. It seems, it seems as though the actual one ring system is, is leading by, by orders of magnitude ahead of, so I don't know that there is in fact very much of a market. I, I suspect that uh, people who enjoy playing 5e l- like it with all of the bits intact and they don't yeah. actually yeah. want the character creation scooped out and replaced. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. It also think... seems... Sorry, go ahead, go ahead, John. No, go ahead, Ben. Oh, I was going to say, it also seems to me that you have to have a level of enthusiasm for a setting in order to, like both you and your group, in order to jump into it. And Lord of the Rings is the kind of thing that I think a lot of people have a lot of enthusiasm for. And I feel like if you are a group of people who, because I'm assuming the One Ring came out well before the 5e, right? Yeah, at least a um, year. Yeah, I yeah. have to believe that if you were, if you had a group of friends who were enthusiastically looking to play Lord of the Rings, you jumped on it as soon as it came out. And so it's possible that one ring just sort of ate five E five E's lunch, so to speak um, with groups I, of people who are already hyped for it. I, I, I suspect you are right. It's just like everybody who was really excited about the game just, just bought that the original, the original game and doesn't actually want it. So it's, it's kind of interesting. It, it, it may be indeed that the five E support was just a, a giant, waste of resources and time uh yeah which is but uh, i which is really i would imagine they had to do something right because they i'm sure there was some demand but who knows know. who knows maybe who knows? maybe the plan was always for retail but anyways enough talking about all this corporate <laughs> rat race nonsense because we have uh with us today ben who is uh uh working on uh your your very own rpg uh so rather than adapting and figuring out how to uh, uh make uh, 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 Wizards of the Coast and Tolkien Estate kiss uh, through the medium of, of, of game design. You you are just uh, forging a brand new non corporate play space, and I want to hear all about it. Yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, do, let me do a little intro here just to remind people, and then I'll let Ben tell us a little bit about his game. So, a few episodes ago, we talked about this is back in uh, August. We talked about RFTCon. And this was the episode where I described the James Bond game that became the Knights Black Agents game that I ran. And uh, uh, listeners may remember that I also talked about 
another game that I had that I that was a really profound experience for me where we played it. It was called Wick and Wander. And, um, you know, I said, I almost cried. And the guy next to me did burst into tears at one point. And we, wow. uh, so this is that game. This is Ben's creation, Wick and Wander, which he GM'd at the time. He's been working on it. Um, it's, oh, I love it. I've, I have now GM'd it. So last Monday, uh, I conducted a play test of the game with my regular group. Uh, and actually I was worried that this would be really weird, but Ben actually came and observed me GM his game. Um, but in the end it ended up being handy. Like I would just, after about 10 minutes, I was like, Hey Ben, how does this work? You know, just to, just rather than having to, to reference the rules or anything like that, I just treated him as a, a Siri for Wick and Wander. So yeah, <laughs> actually I treat him as Alexa for Wick, Wick and Wander because I got actually useful responses when I asked him <laughs> questions. So you don't, just, you don't just need to know the weather. You have other, other needs. Exactly. So yeah, so I GM'd uh, this awesome game, Wick and Wander, and I, I, do you want to describe how the mechanics work, Ben? And then I can sort of add some some flourishes or thoughts, and then we can start there. Because it's different than most other RPGs. I, there's things I could point to that it's similar to, but its actual core mechanic is, I think, very different than most of the things I've played. So do you want to do setting first or mechanics first? I think that they, they, they sort of circle back into each other, but I'm happy to describe the mechanics first, because um, I think that's... What I, honestly, it was sort of a surprise to me, but that seems to be the thing that that people that hooks people into it. I think John, mm-hmm. they know better than, but I, I think that's that's where I, I see people sort of like really um, sinking their teeth into it. So so I'm happy to talk about that first if you'd like. Yeah, start there. Yeah. So um, so it's a it, it is a, uh, a a broad interpretation of a powered by the apocalypse game uh, based on mostly conversations I've had with John, honestly, about his enthusiasm for Powered by the Apocalypse. Mm. Um, but the, so it, it uses moves, it uses something akin to playbooks, it has, you know, degrees of complication um, rather than sort of binary success and failure. Um, all things that that are going to be familiar to people who have played a bunch of like narrative RPGs and Powered by the Apocalypse games. Um, the, the thing that... Uh, is a little different is that instead of dice for resolution, it uses a deck of cards for resolution. Um, so rather than a, just a character sheet and a set of, of um, dice, you have this deck and the deck is comprised of different attribute cards. Um, so there's five attributes uh, and they are the distribution of those attributes is representative of your character, the sort of nature of your character. So the more of a given attribute you have, the better you are at a, at a, at a particular thing. So, yeah. So for example, just to jump in. So you start off with 25 cards, five for each attribute. Um, and they're everything from intelligence to power. Uh, and they're, they're not a good map to D&D, but just for example, power. If you wanted to be a more powerful character, which is either sort of physical or mental power, you can actually trade in. Uh, other cards to get more power cards in your deck. So if you want to have seven power cards in your deck instead of five, uh, you can do a swap to do that, but you still have the same 25 cards, right? Mm. So you increase your frequency of drawing the, the, the attribute that you want. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, so how it ends up, how it ends up working in play is um, similar to how you would roll a die uh, to determine the degree of success for uh a move in a, in a Powered by the Apocalypse game, 
you do a test um, and you're testing, you're basically searching for a particular attribute. So you have your deck and it, you shuffle it at the beginning of a session and then there's a handful of, of things that will cause it to get reshuffled. Basically your discard pile gets shuffled and put back in. But generally throughout a session, you're just moving cards from your draw pile to your discard pile. And so what will happen is someone will say, I want to try, I'm going to, I'm going to do a test. I want to, um, you know, uh, climb up this slick cliff face or something like that. Um, and they may do, a, a, there's a particular move um, that, that would uh, have an assigned attribute, a target attribute. So you would say, I'm going to test for power. And what you end up doing is you, you draw cards from your deck one at a time in search of the attribute that you're targeting. Um, and the number of cards that you draw in search of that attribute is what determines your degree of success. So if you top deck it, if the first card you draw is the card you're looking for, that is um, a, a, an astounding, a resounding success. You get, you get what Interesting. you want and you get some additional boon, some, some, you know, that some, some um, extra thing. So if you're trying to climb the cliff face, that might look like not only do you find your way up, but you find a, uh, you find a path that is clear for your compatriots so they can follow you without having to make a similar test. Um, if you find it within two or three cards, um, then you have a, a partial success. Though I don't call them partial success. I call it degrees of complication because there's not really failure. I mean, as you know, it doesn't, you can't, in earlier versions of the game, um, I had a situ I had situations where you just simply drew and you failed outright and that just sucked and it was boring. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so what ends up happening now is just the, the complications escalate the more cards you draw. Um, so the first two or three cards, that's a sort of a mild complication. And then past that four plus you get into sort of like very serious complications that can befall the character. And, um, and then the way that complications end up working is each, each, attribute that you might be testing for is going to have a set of small complication prompts. They're not, they're intentionally vague. So they might things be things like you overshoot your mark or you draw attention to yourself or something hears you or um, things like that. And depending on what you're testing, uh, we, if it's, if it lands within that, that medium range of two or three, the, the character, the player doing the test, they, choose the complication that applies they choose the prompt and the gm sort of like elaborates on what that looks like um giving them this a little bit of narrative control and then if it's four plus the gm adds whichever complications they'd like two or more um additional complications layering it on based on the severity uh the number of cards drawn basically yeah and there's a and and there's another type of card in the deck there can be other types of cards yeah, and sure. and i love this so much that i would like to describe it but if i get it wrong you know oh. take over um yeah. so during character creation you go through and you do this list of relationships uh with other players and their characters at the table so it's really their characters right so the first prompt is who do you love right and um you pick a character you don't have to elaborate at that time you just and then who do you respect um, and then who do you want to be like, right? So then you put these cards into your deck. You shuffle them in. They're, they're flowers. So, right, if I choose, I write down on my character sheet, I love uh, Kyle, right? Because Kyle's the other character. And then that's represented by a card in my deck, like a chrysanthemum, chrysanthemum, for example, right? So when I draw that, regardless of draw, it's a success. 
However, I draw it and say, oh, uh, this is because of my relationship with Kyle. Uh, how does my love of Kyle make me successful? And hmm. and that is a really we could I could talk about this part of the game all day. But what I love about that is make it makes these incredible connections between your characters and therefore the players. And this is why several of us were really emotionally invested in this game when we played it at RFT can, or at least a big part of the reason I should say. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to say as exquisite as this card drawing mechanic says, I doubt that that is what drove people to tears is draw just drawing (laughs) cards instead of, of of rolling dice. Right. Yeah. Uh, It's like everybody, it listens systems matter and all that much, but they're not driving anybody to tears. Yeah. Uh, So, so yeah. Why? um, uh, So this is, this, this game describes itself as, as sort of like a, what, what are the words you use here? A, a pastoral, a world of pastoral abundance where humanity has recovered from a climate apocalypse and now works to live in the harmony with nature. So like, yeah. Why, um, why, why did you choose to make a game about these specific themes? Yeah, I think, so what's funny is this game before it, it was sort of in search of a setting for a really long time. Mm. Um, and I think you had a mechanized version, like a steampunk yeah, robot, like, like, uh, like Ben, I don't, you know, I haven't played a ton of games with Ben, but he tend like Warforged was probably his favorite character class from Eberron. Like he's oh, into like yeah. cyberpunk and, and mechs and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. So, so for a long time, I thought this was going to be a cyberpunk game or sort of like a magic punk um, game. And this, I realized that there's a few things. I had a conversation with, with my sister who is an illustrator and, and uh, God willing, will be working on this game with me in the future. Um, and part of it was just a conversation that we were having about what kinds of settings excited her and what, what, um, sort of a, 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 a merger of those, of our two interests could potentially look like. Um, but in the, in the, when it was a cyberpunk game, um, or when I was thinking of it in, in terms of cyberpunk that, and, and the thing that I love most about cyberpunk is the the way that it that it draws into focus like human relationships because it because for me the the thing that's exciting about cyberpunk is that is that everything is like like nothing cares about you right like like the world itself um is apathetic to your existence and so the only thing that the only thing that you have that cares about you is the other people, the people you care about, the relationships that you build. And right. so it creates this like amazing contrast between between um, the, the harsh reality outside and this like these very gentle, intimate moments inside. And I, when I say cyberpunk, I really mean sort of Blade Runner and that kind of noir cyberpunk, less so the, the kind of like action packed um, cyberpunk 2077. Um, right. But anyways, so so th- that amazingly that that sort of sense of of like the broader world being apathetic to your existence not hating you not being malicious um that uh that translated beautifully to this sort of verdant um post post apocalypse where where you have this sort of natural world that is gorgeous and complex and also doesn't care about you um so uh i think uh, when we were playing murph said like so Ben has a list of inspirations at the top, um, uh, or what do you call them? You call them touchstones. touchstones. But I, that's lifted from, I think, something. Um, 
that I got from from Chris. But anyway, yeah, yeah. But there are things like uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, particularly the Shire parts, or Spirited mm-hmm. Away, or Princess Mononoke. And um, uh, one interesting, one really intriguing one is Scavenger's Reign, which I hadn't heard of, but now I really want to watch. Um, but then he puts in the film Annihilation. And Murph looks at me and goes, I think that's the first time The Hobbit and Annihilation have been in a set of like inspirations or touchstones together. <laughs> you know, and I think that really sort of dives into why the setting is cool. It, I, when I was running it, I kept thinking of the beginning of Princess Mononoke, which, if you haven't seen it, it, it features this warrior on a horse trying to calm a demon who's rampaging through the countryside, shouting at it and trying to calm it. And there's just this sense of, uh, futility. He's completely overwhelmed by this thing. This thing is sort of out of control. It's 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 nature on a muck. It's more than humans can handle. And yet at the same time, uh, he's able to sort of come up with a solution for it. And that's when when Ben introduced this game to me. Annihilation was what I thought of. I also thought of like Numenera, but uh, less combat oriented. Right, like just a weird, mysterious world. And and what isn't there is is an explanation of how you got here. Mm-hmm. Right, Ben just says it's a post post apocalypse. Right, like we're not dealing with the outfall of the apocalypse. This is how we live now. Mm-hmm. So we need to you know connect with other creatures in this world. Um, and so yeah, I thought that was that was just brilliant. Yeah, and it, I think honestly, it 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 became this and remains this this sort of very therapeutic outlet for me, I, I, I think, and I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm special in, in this case, or I don't think I'm the only person who feels this way. Like after the last few years, that, that sense of isolation and that sense of, of, um, I don't know, like just kind of feeling disempowered in the face of forces that are, that are just so far outside of your control and even outside of your understanding. And so a lot of, so, so the, the the theme I think is really just a way for me to work that out to like find find those moments of connection in a world that feels like vast and that makes me feel small and kind of powerless in a way. Uh, and so it's it, I just keep circling back to that 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 feeling of like and that and reminding myself because over and over again outside of the game. Um, the, the thing that the thing that grounded me and that brought me back when I when I was when you know things were really difficult through the pandemic and even after was the people was the people around yeah. me and that's what made the isolation so hard but um, so this that, that's what I really try and do with the game too is 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 hopefully create uh, an engine that builds those connections um, that, that like that encourages that kind of thinking that kind of constant, reflecting back on the relationships you have instead of um instead of looking inward at just like your character or your or whatever yeah yeah i, I think we, that's i think that's really important and i think that's i think that's really cool to kind of like see that there is there's something you're trying to figure out in your own life and um you know game design is a medium of exploring you know what what was it that brandon asked us it's like what are we what do we, what is the point of play or what is the point? What are we figuring out? What are we yeah, making right. sense of with games and ways of being and ways of thinking and, 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 and kind of putting on, trying out these like other sort of like almost like sensory organs in some ways. It's like, how can we, how can we make 
relationships and material parts of experience yeah. and yeah. and game design yeah. is one of the things that can do that uh, and, and even yeah. if that material is a card you know it's still like that's a that's a substance that is is real in a way that it is not in in sort of waking life totally you know what's interesting is i think about why why that first experience where i didn't so that so when we ran it as a play test it was it was very much less emotional um, but I think you got a ton of feedback. Like, I think everybody's brain was absolutely spinning with suggestions and ideas and mm-hmm. thoughts after the game. Like it was certainly very engaging, but I think the first time it was interesting because, and in fact, the guy who, um, who broke up a little bit, looked at me and said, are all story games like this? I was like, well, no, but because what happened is as you play those cards and have to describe those relationships, it, it does sort of trigger your, your emotion sensors and kick them up a little bit. So when we had an encounter with a ghost, of a, of a boy who got lost, like that's where we all kind of lost it. Cause we're our emotional, you know, uh, detectors were amped up and then we ran into a really emotional situation. Uh, and, and that's when it kind of, that's when we kind of came apart a little bit. Yeah. Totally. It was really, it was, so I think in that sense, the game really works. I think one thing I'm struggling with is Ben has asked me to sort of give him help and some ideas. And I keep, I keep wanting to default to, hey, let's just do classic conflict, right? Like somebody is smuggling stuff or stealing stuff or there's a bad guy. And I don't think that's what Ben is after at all. Like like this indifference of the environment to you, it still provides danger, but not in a way that is evil. You know what I mean? So that is more what the game is about. So, so all of my ideas about sort of classic conflict and how to just easily shoehorn those in, I'm really trying to like stay away from those, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting. As you're running a game, uh, you you kind of have to be um, really willing to, or even ca- like your imagination has to be able to tune into what are the creative priorities of the game. Yeah, uh, and I think you know if you're if you're kind of a, a couple of pulp heads like me and John. Uh, you know, it's just like, Hey, if somebody gets punched in the face, you know, we're going to have a, I know what to expect after that. Right. Yeah. Right. Like that's, that's kind of a legitimate thing to do versus like, you know, what are, what are some more of these like existential beats? And I think that is, that is something that these kinds of games that are going for a different mode of conflict really need to support the GM with. Totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, and that has been a huge part of where like conversations with John has been, have been so helpful because, um, and like John just, just GM'd it for the first time. Right. And, and one of the things, the reason that I was sort of there leering as John ran the game (laughs) was because I have no sense or I had no sense, have a better sense now, like where, I end and the game starts or vice versa. Like, yeah. Like how much of, how much of the experience is, is, um, am I just, is, it's just me like using my friends as therapy, like foisting my own is <laughs> onto, onto my friends for them to deal with, you know? Um, and so seeing John run it and seeing the places where the theme, the, the rules carried the theme and seeing places where they didn't was like, was incredibly helpful. And so that is going to be, and John knows this all too well. Immediately after the game, I was like, I, so John and I drove to the game together. And yeah. drove. And, the, and I said, drove. Ben, I have no adventure. What are we going to do? Like, <laughs> I was like, I've read the rules. I understand the mechanics. I understand the setting. 
Like I didn't have like, you know, and I figured like I remembered what Ben had done and I sort of picked up some beats from that. But I was just I had this moment of panic where I'm like, wait, I have no idea how to start. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I mean, you crushed it, right? You did. You did amazingly well. Um, So no, no complaints, honestly. It was just kind of funny. Like I was just like, I was like, to be honest, I was I was more nervous than I normally am running my game. I was like. God, I hope I pull this off. Like I've been praising this game. Ben's really trusting me here. Like yeah, I didn't I have a moment mean. on the ride over. I was like, man, I don't want to screw this up. <laughs> no, honestly, I, 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 I had no concern. Not just because I have watched you DM and 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 played with you and have absolute faith in your capacity to do it, but also just because any kind of I know that you wouldn't feel this. Like I know it would still feel bad if if it completely crashed and burned while you were running it. But there was no no um scenario no matter how bad that wasn't going to be informative uh right i think the, the the thing that has been true that i tried to keep so my partner is now for all the backstory now from some ben lore um, <laughs> my my partner is a is a design leader and so a lot of our conversations um hinge around an experience design specifically um so a lot of our conversations hinge around how best to to um, allow something to evolve, like how, how best to find some the, the shape something wants to take over time, given some set of constraints, right? So my my big thing with Wiccan Wonder was I, I do my absolute best to not be precious about anything about the game except the, the feeling that it evokes. So like I don't, the, the rules are all secondary um and and so the number of times so watching you run the game like you you and i started going back and forth immediately um about tweaks things that are missing things but the the shape of the game now as compared to what it was at the like the the primary mechanic right now of wick and wander is is was was essentially a, a, a bolted on afterthought to a much more complex primary resolution mechanic that um Basically, I had like a combat and a role playing. Yeah, I remember that combat and role playing uh, mechanisms, and the combat mechanism was vastly more complex. And I was trying to use the same deck of cards for both, and it just nothing worked. And so, basically, after one particularly rough game of one particularly rough playtest, I stopped everything and I cut the entire combat every every piece of combat like all the rules just deleted them. Um, and just kept that little snippet of role-playing rules. And that's what everything is that exists now is born out of. Um, but anyways, all of that is the long way of saying, John, like, I, I know you were worried, but I was never worried because <laughs> I knew you were going to crush it. And even if by some, you know, freak occurrence, it wasn't enjoyable, right? Re- calling back to to RF, uh, to, to Roll for Topic, right? If, if your players are having fun, you're a great GM. Um, if... Uh, I knew that you were going to, the people in your game were going to have fun regardless. So even if it um, didn't work, I mean, the, the big thing too is, is I've had games, I've had games that of it that are indistinguishable from the outside to the play, indistinguishable to the players, as far as like the quality of the experience, but as a GM have felt night and day, because in some cases I could feel myself carrying it. And in other cases I could feel the game carrying itself. And so that's, that's like what I'm always looking for is, and that's why I want to give it to you and, and have you run it and see 
where you, because I know you can pick it up and carry it when it needs to be carried, but I also know that that's a thing you would recognize at in play, right? You would feel those moments where, where you, and I saw you do it a couple of times, right? You were playing and Brandon needed to do something and you invented a rule on the fly for like a quick determination drawn right. from the deck, right? And I, and I was like, oh, okay, what, what made him feel that he needed to do that? And where could the game have supported him in that? You know what I mean? Um, and so, yeah, it, it, all of that is to say it was super valuable regardless. And I was, I was never worried. You know, it's fun. I had a similar experience actually at work. We were showing off a piece of software we built for somebody. It was, it had a grid and, uh, and the first question we got from one of the users was, is there a way to export this grid to Excel? And we're like, yes, but if you want to do that, that means you're not getting something out of this that, yeah, that we want you to be getting out of it. So how can we improve that experience? You're not asking me that question. And yeah, I totally. feel like that's kind of like what one thing you're saying is, you know, when the game isn't supporting John, what's the what piece is it is there that yeah, it wasn't exactly. supporting? Yeah, exactly. yeah, awesome. And that's sorry, Kyle. Go ahead. No, I was going to say I, I think that's I think that's really the hairiest part of um, of of game design and playtesting. Is, uh, is is trying to figure out where you end and the game begins. Because yeah. um, we had a, a similar kind of situation when I, when I was playtesting this uh, game we took to, to Denmark a couple of years ago. And, you know, my run through of it and my design partner's run through of it both went really, really great. Yeah. But, but that's because we were running the game in our head. We were... We were we were kind of like juking it. We knew what yeah. what we wanted out of it, uh, but when we actually did hand it over to somebody else, we we did not see exactly the same results. And totally. people felt uh, they were they were twisting in the wind at, at certain points. And and our design was kind of like working against other people uh, because they didn't they didn't know why we had put this there and that there and the other thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, I think that's exactly the thing. And that's, that reminds me a lot of how like Matt Colville and James Intercasso are talking about their design process for their new game uh, is, is they will throw out almost everything they started with. They have thrown out. So they used to have like bespoke dice for it. They used to have like all these kinds of like, there was a GM currency that was being spent and all this. And they have, Taught, they have ripped all of that out because if it doesn't serve, if it doesn't serve the play that they're looking for, yep. then it doesn't belong in the game. And yes. uh, and I, I think that is that is that's really what you need to do, especially for um, if it's if it's designed to be a customer project or process, and it's not something that this exists so I can invite people over and run this game at cons. This is sort yeah. of like your people are buying tickets to this thing. If it's a if it's a thing that is needs like to be repeatable by other GMs, then you really have yeah. to yeah. examine absolutely. things in an uncomfortable way sometimes. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I. Uh, there was so John just to just to give you like a little bit of, of uh oh no 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 no. <laughs> no 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 don't worry I was gonna say a glimpse into one of the things that that like really sung for me when you were when you were GMing um, and one of the things that I wasn't sure was reproducible um, so there are there are these moments where someone is trying to help someone else in the game. A character is trying to help another character in the game and they go to take, they go to do a test 
and they land on the seeds. The seed is the, what, I, what we call the relationship cards. They land on the seed for that person that they're trying to help. And it creates this like beautiful circle of like, of like, I'm trying to help this person and my relationship with this person informs how I help them and how I succeed. And, and it happened a couple of times during the, the original play test. And it ha it's happened a few times when I've been running it, but seeing it happen in play when you're doing it, it, it to me, it feels like the Wiccan Wanderer equivalent of like rolling a crit where it's like, right. it's yeah. like, and ever and the energy at the table when people are like people are like oh you're helping him and they're helping you and it's just like that that circle that 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 like that it completes in that moment um, was it's so magical to see that I don't know it's it's like it's like building a little toy and then handing it to someone and seeing them understand it and play with it and and get out of it what the experience that I want to sort of elicit it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's like the thing that I'm high on, the thing that keeps me coming back that I'm keep chasing. is just that experience of like, um, seeing someone else have an impactful experience with the game. So, um, that, that moment to see it happen in play when I'm not running, it was, was like incredible. Awesome. So, um, we've been going for like 45 minutes. I feel like we've, I feel like we're at a good spot, but if we have more to say, we should say more, but I feel like we've, we've said a lot of good things and talked about the game pretty well. Well, I, I guess, I guess, um, I, I would love to hear like, what are the takeaways? Like, what are the things that you're still tinkering with Ben? Like what is next for this game? Yeah. Uh, and, and like, what are your plans for release? And like, what are, what are some of the, uh, hurdles you have yet to, uh, attempt? Totally. I mean, the, the, the thing that I'm really focused on, so I'm really focused on two things right now. Um, one is just GM tools and, 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 and figuring out how to continue to like divorce myself from the game mm. as much as possible and, and, and find ways to, to, that when I give it to someone, the stories that come out of it are in line with the, not the, I mean, obviously you, People can take it and make with it what they want, but I want it to consistently be rules as written, a machine that creates this particular kind of experience that I'm hoping for. So um, the big thing that I'm working on right now are just refining the moves that are available to my players. Uh, because the thing that excited me about Powered by the Apocalypse when I first started talking to John um, was the way that the moves bridges this gap between theme narrative and mechanic where it's like it, it creates this this framework for your players to understand what's possible in the world and it gets them thinking about the world in the term in terms of your theme and so when i first created my list of moves it was really sort of copy and paste from what i could imagine doing in dnd right it was like sure. it was like climb a wall name a plant read a book like it was it was very rudimentary <laughs> and so so now over as as we play every time we play i'm tweaking and refining and it's not just like it's not just what a rule does or what a move does mechanically but it's also the description of the move the flavor text that tells the player how to think about that action within the context of the world and so that is like a, a big point of refinement right now is i and i keep coming back to those moves and tweaking them every time i see a player be like well, I stab it, you know, my, my brain is like, my brain is like, Oh, okay. Let, let, how do I, how do I adjust the language here? How do I adjust the, all of this so that 
they intuit that that's not the, necessarily the solution that, that the game wants you to bring. That's interesting. Well, like a game like Trophy will just straight up say, if you attack the monster, your character dies. That, yeah. That you can only, you know, it's just like, it's some games are just like, instead of designing something that is going to result in play, or totally. even like uh, uh, Cyborg, the, the cyberpunk Mortborg says, like, yeah. you cannot play a cop or be sympathetic to Corpos. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just like, that is rule zero of this game. It's like, totally. we're, we're not, we're not like getting, we're not allowing that play to emerge by our reward structure. Yeah. We are super liminally telling you that's not what this game is about, but and- um, there, you know, that comes at a cost, you know, totally. And there, and there is a degree of that. I mean, degree, it's actually fairly heavy handed in Wicked Wander. In Wicked Wander, there is, so there, there are common moves, which are your base moves. And then there are archetypes, which are your playbooks and they bring with them extra moves and features and things like that. Um, and in the base moves and the set of moves that everyone has access to, um, there are no, the, the only combat oriented move is just called survive. And it's just like weathering an attack. There's no, there's no overt combat. Um, the only, the only archetype that has the capacity mechanically to, to like use violence in service of, of solving a problem is, is called the scarred. And they are specifically described as sort of bearing the, the moral burden of violence for the people around them. Mm. And so I do cert, I do limit the like players capacity to kind of um even do even do sword play or whatever or at least do sword play in in and as they endeavor to like kill something or kill someone um so it's it's uh it's constrained in that way um but that's still i still have sort of other tweaks and adjustments to make to uh yeah and I, one thing that came out of our play test was something that apparently came out of some others, which is some sort of stronger assist or support move, yeah. which wasn't in the game, but you really wanted everyone to be able to do to some extent yeah. to, because to, everybody wanted to do it. They were into the game as you were, as you had designed it and they were trying to be like, oh, I should be helping them. Where's my help them move, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and um, so that was one big thing that came out of that play test. Too. Yep. And we have that now. And John, you can test it next time you run. <laughs> uh are you have you looked at all at uh, avery alder's dream askew i've only read so i i have purchased a copy of it but i haven't read it yet i've read the description and i've he- heard you speak favorably of it so oh, yes um yeah i'm excited to, to get my hands on it uh yeah because I, I think i think that is going to put some things into uh into place as far as like how how to um, set up what the conflict is and how to like, kind of like, cause the, 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 the use of the word archetypes is really interesting because like, these aren't like, you know, these aren't archetypes kind of implies that I would know what these are, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, but all of these are kind of like, they're, they're, they are uh, uh, their own thing. Like it, 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 they tell me more about the world, which is great. Uh, but I, I feel like the, um, I forget what they're called. They're not called classes. I think they might just be called playbooks in uh, in Dream Askew. They are also equally weird, right? Like the, the whole thing is to kind of like you find bits of recognition amongst the strange and unrecognizable. Like it's yeah. very much drawing you into 
the the queerness of the world and a queer relationship with everybody you don't have your normal pronouns for everything you don't have everything is not in its place so you you have to approach it cautiously but it also gives ownership of different pieces of conflict over to the players it's a gm-less game um which is which is also pretty interesting but anyways it's i I think that's great and it's another game that i will always go to bat for is um uh, a plague among us which which i've mentioned on the show several times yeah uh but that, I, I, I've something, heard you talk about something that game does really well is it comes with the um the laws by which the seekers of the dead must abide right so yeah. that very you already know if i'm running a scene right here i want the conflict is going to come from these laws that i have to follow yeah. And if somebody's not asking me to break one of these laws, then we may as well not have this scene, right? So it's it's like I'm almost wondering if there is some kind of like a uh, 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 never again kind of prime directive in yeah, this world absolutely. that gives gives that tells people like what they are striving for and like totally. what is the optimism that they are chasing down with some yeah. kind of practicality. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 not, I'm not actually. I'm more thinking about aloud about the things that this game has made me think about than I am kind of like hot fixing your game. I no, would never no, no, want to do okay. that. That's, that's totally fine. That That is a hundred percent where all every piece of this game has been. So John, you'll probably, this will be not even cut bitlets. This will just be cut. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, what's so funny about this game, right. And just the history of it is it started, it started, Maybe eight years ago, I started thinking about a card-based RPG because I heard about a Kickstarter for a game, the name of which now escapes me, that was Kickstarted by Penny Arcade. It was like one of it was like one of their first games before they started publishing a bunch that was, and they described it as sort of like a card-based, a deck-based RPG. And I remember just thinking, hmm, that's interesting. That would be cool. And I and I built up in my mind this idea of what it was going to be. And I kickstarted yes. it without reading the description. And I got it. And it's not anything like that. It yes, is nothing. Yeah. I've never played it. I've only read the rules. And it's not a thing I'm even interested in. But I own it. It's in my cupboard. Um, but uh, that that like little seed, I just sort of carried this kernel in my head of like a card-based RPG. And um, and then I had and then I played this this board game. Uh, that I was like, this is it. This is this central gameplay loop. Like this is the thing. And that is also the gameplay loop that I've since completely thrown out. Uh, And, uh, and so it's just like, it's been this sort of like skipping stone of like bumping up against the right thing at the right time. And then having these critical conversations with my sister and with, with John and with other people in the, the discord and, and, and running into these, these moments of like, um, I don't remember the exact, I don't remember the quote, but it's, it essentially, it boils down to like, make the art that, make the thing that you can't not make. Like make the thing that feels like it just, yes. you you can't help, but it needs to exist and no one else is making it. And that, at some point this became that, but it wasn't that for a really long time. And then eventually a conversation with my sister and a conversation with Sarah and a conversation with John, like something strung together and it became this kernel. And I was like, oh, this hat like i have to keep doing this um and so i don't have any and to go back to your other question about like releasing it or plans or i have no 
no concrete plans right now, especially because my sister who who is um, secretly but not secretly, sec- maybe secretly to her but not secretly to anyone else, the person who I want to illustrate all of this. Sure. Um, she's currently in the process of delivering a Kickstarter that funded a little while ago. Um, Which but- is brilliant, by the way. Would you tell him the topic? It is a tarot deck. Right. Oh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a chicken themed tarot deck. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's all chickens, and it's amazing. And she she really loves chickens and has been keeping them for years. And um, and I'm honestly so inspired by by her her approach to art and her ap- approach to creativity and creation. In that she really makes like this this tarot deck is so her like it is it is, she she made no effort and this is not a underhanded compliment like she made no effort to like mark to, to try and make something that is marketable or that is saleable or or whatever she 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 just created this piece of art that 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 reflects her and her her truest like it's just so true to her it's it is absolutely what she wants to make and she said in the description and i was like i don't know if i would put this in the kickstarter description she was like whether or not this funds i will make this and i was like and i was like that's that's not good marketing claire but but it's true like it it, it just it rockets out of her she can't help it you know um and it is so in, inspired by her life so anyways it's amazing um and is she the one I that did those bits of illustration on the front page there She's, so there are a few key pieces of art in the documents that she has done. Everything else is just Pinterest, just stuff sure. I pulled for Pinterest, sort of thematic um, touchstones, equivalent to touchstones, but for 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 art. Because I obviously am not a visual, I'm not a, I can't draw. <laughs> this is the sure. longest part of it. Um, but uh, anyways, I want her to do the illustration, and she, I don't know if she knows that yet, but she will when she listens to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so for all of, for that reason, and because I have, I'm in no rush to, to have this be anything sooner than it's ready to be something. Um, I don't know when it'll be available broadly if, if ever. Um, but I do hope that just in service of getting it into people's hands, I eventually have a way to, to distribute it. Um, even if that's as a print and play or, or, or something, um, it's, uh, I don't know. I just like, I like sharing it with people and I'm addicted to sharing it with people now. So it's, it's heck um, yeah. Amazing. You know, I know I was like, I was like, when I was inviting him on the show, I was like, Ben, I'm 99% sure this isn't an issue, but some people get really precious. Like, are you sure you want to talk about all your mechanics and stuff and have a few hundred people hear about it? And he's like, yeah, like, why wouldn't I? Like, <laughs> it's like, I figured that wasn't, you know, you weren't going to hoard your game. But so, I just some some sure. people get really spooked. They think that they're, they think that ideas are, are, are precious. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and they are, they are uh, defending themselves only from the feedback that they need to continue. Totally. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the number of times, and this happens every time, like I'm the number of times, I mean, you know, all too well that Brandon is, is, is like an, a font of wisdom his, and perf- and like <laughs> with with a mind like a razor, yeah. right? Like he will just cut right to whatever the the feedback he has in a, in a really nice way, but like his brain can't not yeah figure out how to solve something exactly. Yeah. And Brandon has played in two playtests so far, and in both cases has said in a sentence something that has fundamentally changed something about the game, like mm. made some observation and and and. I don't know why I wouldn't 
seek that out because the game is always it's it's always better as a result of those conversations. It's never it's never worse. And 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 I don't know. I think I know what I want the game to feel like, and that is what I'm in pursuit of. I'm not in pursuit of any sort of mechanism. I mean, there's something. Sorry, if you'll let, if you'll allow me to go on a really brief tangent about why I like the deck of cards, because this is something I always try and tell people when they play the game. Um, the only thing, the only thing I'm precious about is using the cards, and the reason that I find the cards so intriguing is because they feel as though, and this is something that Brandon remarked on when we were like post the play test that you were that you ran, John. Um, they feel as though they capture and to a degree obfuscate the complexity of the game without the players needing to think about it in play because all of the math that goes into creating your character and understanding the probabilities of a thing happening or not happening um is is boiled down into this deck of cards and like yeah you can count the cards but you don't have to think about the cards in play when you're interacting with them so you cre it creates this experience where you front load and character creation is a beast. You front load character creation. And then in play, all you have is this, this real palpable instantaneous tension of like, is my, am I going to be able to accomplish this thing? And you don't have to do any math at all. There's no, like, there's no translation from abstraction to theme. The theme is just there right in front of you all the time. And that's, and that's what I, think is so interesting about the cards and i'm not i'm not saying like everything should be a card-based rpg no but this in this very particular instance the way that the cards um hide from you the math hide from yeah. it, it, it it serves the theme very well because you never have to think you 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 you're always just dealing in in thematic absolutes i either did or i didn't do this thing to some degree or another you're never having to like translate it to something on your character sheet, which is honestly one of my biggest reservations about the seeds being on the character sheet. The fact that you, because originally what would happen is the seeds were these consumable cards. You would write the relationship on the card and put it in, but I didn't want to have a consumable as like a necessity for playing the game. Cause that just felt, it felt like it would turn people off. It turned me off. Um, and, uh, and so one of the things that is sort of a necessary evil, I think is that, the, the, you have these you have these stand-in cards in your deck that represent the relationships, but the relationships themselves are on the on the character sheet. And even that brief moment of like, oh, I drew a chrysanthemum. What is a chrysanthemum? That feels like uh, I wish there was a way around it. But um, but yeah, it, that's a tough one. And when the first time I played it, we had we were still using the consumable cards, and I think. <laughs> There was something to that. So that's a that's a problem to solve. Um, an interesting one. Two things about the cards that are interesting. One is, um, I think you're right that they do have that immediacy. But another one of my players, Steve, um, if you didn't notice, is a math genius. Yeah. Right. And he uh, he's like, what about card counters? He's like, I can't help myself. I know exactly what's there. I know exactly what I've drawn. I remember like I can't, you know, and that and I don't know how much of a barrier that is to fun. But it was interesting to hear that perspective because I don't even try. Yeah, but he's like, I, I just do it. I can't help it. Yeah. And I've had a few players. I, I've run into that a couple of times where people have been and there were older versions of the game that were where that kind of awareness would have been more beneficial. But I think there's a few things that counteract that impulse, not that you should or could stop doing it if it's a thing you're doing by default or can't help yourself from doing. But the, the fact that the game doesn't 
like in in a Powered by the Apocalypse game, complete success is the most boring thing that can happen, right? Like mm. like even from a player perspective, top decking or rolling a twenty and just getting exactly what you wanted and clambering up a wall or doing whatever with no complications is not exciting. And so optimizing for that play isn't isn't optimizing for enjoyment. It's just optimizing for for nothing, right? Uh, or it's optimizing for for success when success doesn't actually bring joy, I guess. Um, and and I think that is a lesson that players I've seen players learn in play. Like I've seen I've seen people go from counting cards to not counting cards as they realize that they don't care. Like they're less they're not invested in in um, it's complete success or an optimization, but also there's not really a way to optimize because you don't control when you shuffle your deck, right? Your deck shuffles in very specific situations when it runs out and you take a, a complication or um, when you get back to like an enclave or something like that. And so ultimately you, your awareness of the distribution doesn't change. It just means that you're, you know, you know more about the composition of the deck than someone who's not paying attention. But um, I haven't, I've yet to have anyone who, for whom that was an impulse say to me that it negatively impacted their experience with the game which i think is the best i can hope for because i'm not going to mitigate it like i can't i'm not going to say like don't you do it don't you count those cards you know um so there's there's a certain you know i don't know if there's a way around it basically but and remember human communities huddle around a network stabilizing artifacts known only as the singing stones which protect them from the chaos of the wild world outside book is a proud part of Roll For It Media. Be sure to check out our sister show, Roll For Topic, which is available wherever fine podcasts are purveyed or by visiting their website at gmdiscussions.com. And please leave us a five-star review on your podcasting app of choice. It really helps people find the show. Contact the show by sending us an email at splatbookpod at gmail.com or by leaving us a 90-second voice message on the Splat phone by visiting bit.ly slash splatphone. You can follow me on social media at Kyle Latino on twitter.com or by subscribing to my YouTube channel, MapCrow. And you can follow John in your hearts. Music for today's episode was by Quantum Jazz from their 2011 album, End of the Line. Our intro was a track called Intro, and our outro was a track called Passing Fields. Stay tuned for some cut bitlets. Like, I listen to the podcast, and, I, and in my brain, my brain has a hard time distinguishing between what's a conversation I've had with John, <laughs> what's a conversation I've overheard John having. And so 
I feel like you and I, or I know you as well, despite the fact that uh, we've never met. So, yeah, I'm- no, it's funny because I, I feel the same way about my older brother. Uh, um, because, uh, to listen to his podcast is, is like having a relationship with him because he just lectures at you. Uh, so <laughs> it's like, I can never remember what, what is a, what is a conversation we've had versus. Yeah. Like, so. You were like, did, did you scold me directly or did you scold a group of people that I just yeah, Exactly. Yeah. Was I, was I, was this in meat space or was this in virtual space? Uh, since, um, uh, COVID and just like, mm-hmm. you know, for a yes. long time, everybody's regular relationships were also virtual relationships. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's like distinguishing all that, you know, and it's like learning was asynchronous. And so was, you know, it's just, yeah. Like so thing. was happiness. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The happiness was buffering. We got- <laughs> yes. Oh, you are not wrong at all. And so, uh, I'll have to do what I plan to do this past Friday, next Friday, because I will be at PAX. So nice. Heck yeah! I yeah I one of these. It's it's the the tough thing about all the cool like winter shows is I'm it's during my teaching semester, so yeah. I really I don't have uh, the freedom to just like go go to to some of these things. But yeah, PAX Unplugged is definitely one that I, I want to make time for at some point. I could probably yeah. figure it out if I was if I was organized enough. Also, as far as I know, whenever you get to gathered with more than ten people, you catch COVID. So that's that's... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. it's true. Uh, I haven't caught it since the school year started, so I don't know. It's just one of those things. Yeah. Uh, well, do you want to get get going or what? What? Uh... Yeah. Just as an aside, I did. I did. I go on my Siri rant last episode. I. I don't think so. Okay. I just, I said, Siri, remind me. Okay. Siri, remind me to send an email about such and such. And she's like, I don't have an email address for such and such. I'm like, no, remind me. So then I say it slower. Remind me. As in set a reminder. No, didn't help. She just wanted to send an email. And I feel old and dumb all the time (laughs) whenever I talk to Siri. So anyway, carrying on. So... <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Kyle's cat is rubbing his face on the that's, microphone. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been gone for Thanksgiving. I'm sorry. Sorry, fellas. Okay. No, no, no worries. <laughs> the cat is like, I get. I want the attention now, Kyle. All right, you. Um, Are you low feet? Go upstairs, low feet. Low feet, the cat. Are you gonna be okay right here? Yeah. Uh, uh, th- yeah. This was this was fantastic. I I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing all about the process, and uh, I think what you said about the cards, kind of like uh, kind of running themselves, and in, in thinking about the affordances that car a deck of cards remembers its state in a way that a dice doesn't, is is something worth holding on to. I think you're really really got got some chops if you're thinking about game design that way for sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Nice. Ben plays a lot of board games. Yeah. I don't want to give him a hard time about it, but I'm like, the reason this game has cards is all he does is play board games with cards. No. <laughs> if your mind wasn't so poisoned by yeah. all these games, you maybe yeah. would have come to the conclusion. No, it's it's 100. And the the I didn't want to go, I didn't go in the detail into the detail of it, but like the original the original mechanism was so. I basically I was like, imagine if 
instead of D&D, you got to solve a puzzle every round. Like, imagine if every time you wanted to do something, you had to solve a complex Sudoku. It was dumb. It was terrible. <laughs> and and the, the, the grace with which my friends playtested those early versions. Of and I was like, I was like, did you love it? And they were like, oh, we definitely, it was a game. It, it was a game that took a lot of time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Rock>. <laughs> Oh so, yeah, I uh, I am broken. My brain is broken by our by by uh, board games. But fortunately, John is here, and you, Kyle, by way of your podcast, are here to rescue me from the the depravities of board games. Yes, <laughs> no, thank I'm God. Just gonna, I'm, I'm I'm just gonna push you deeper into it. I'm just I'm just gonna <laughs> add more to your eating list. That's all yeah. I'm good for. <laughs> I think that's I think that's honestly the best thing. It's, it's when I was I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before, but when I was getting my MFA in game design as an art practice, yeah. I would have this independent study. And every time I would come in with a question about what I was doing or I'd come in with work to be critiqued, uh, this this guy would, in, instead of answering my question or critiquing my work, would just give me other games to play and read. <laughs> it's just like, ah, ah yes, I, I see, I'll see what you're about doing. This. You should read yeah. this. And it's just like, it's. I think that's that's such a, a better way as an educator to go about these these things it's like in instead of instead of solving people's problems for them and taking taking that out of their hands uh they need to solve yeah. that rubik's cube but they need what they need it is a different different way to look at it oh a hundred percent yeah that's what that's what uh academics are for and then the other thing just giving people answers that's what politicians are for so. <laughs> <laughs> i couldn't well resist put, that i'm well sorry put, well put fantastic all right. Well, I'm going to stop recording. Don't ha- don't.